1: The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, details for the new stress test were finally released. We ask whether the European Banking Authority has made the test strict enough.
2: There hasn't been really that tighter definition around what the pass mark will be, what quarter one equity banks will have to hold.
1: And we look at Sir John Vickers and the increasing pressure he is under to reconsider proposals for a structural reorganisation of the banks.
2: Over the weekend, there were some quite chunky figures out there that were produced by an Oliver Wyman report looking at the potential costs to the banks if they are forced to separate their businesses. This report put the number as high as £15 billion across UK banking.
1: We end the show with a look at the new takeover code put in place to provide a transparent legal framework for substantial acquisition and takeover of publicly listed companies.
0: There's really a couple of key things. One is that the full cost of a bid will have to be disclosed. Another point is that break fees are effectively going to be banned. And the other big thing is that they're really trying to clamp down on what's known as virtual bids.
1: Joining me in the studio to discuss these topics are Charlene Goff and Megan Murphy. We start the show, though, with stateside. This week, the U.S. banking update comes from Suzanne Kapner in New York. Over to you, Suzanne.
3: Patrick, we had three big stories last week. First, banks unveiled dividend increases in stock buyback. Two, Galleon, the insider trading case, was in the headlines again. And three, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation sued former executives of the failed Washington Mutual Bank. First, U.S. banks unveiled dividend increases in stock buybacks within hours of getting the green light from the Federal Reserve to return more cash to shareholders for the first time since 2009. Nineteen institutions were probed by the Fed as part of its comprehensive capital analysis and review, and J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo were among the banks to lift their quarterly dividend payments. Goldman Sachs won approval to buy back $5 billion preferred shares the bank had issued to Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway during the financial crisis. Second, the Galleon insider trading case remained front and center in the U.S. news last week. Titillating bits to emerge from the trial included revelations that Goldman Sachs had considered buying a commercial bank in 2008, but decided against such a deal. In a separate day of hearings, a trader was accused of peddling insider information to Galleon that she had obtained from intimate relationships with executives at IBM and Advanced Micro Devices. Third, and finally, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation sued former executives of the failed Washington Mutual Bank and their wives in an effort to recover $900 million in damages, the largest sought by the FDIC from individuals related to a bank's collapse during the financial crisis. The lawsuit accused WAMU's former chief executive, chief operating officer, and head of its Home Loans Division of gambling billions of dollars of the bank's money on risky mortgages. The suit also accused their wives of helping the executives transfer assets, including homes and millions of dollars, as a way to evade creditors. That's all we have for this week. Back to you, Patrick.
1: Thanks, Suzanne. Let's turn our attention to our first topic for today, details of the European stress tests released at the end of last week. Now, what we haven't had is the results of those stress tests, but we've had the parameters, the methodology that the European regulators are going to be looking at. And once again, criticism, I suppose, as we've long expected, of the severity of the tests, Charlene.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think whenever you get these kinds of stress tests, people are very quick to point out that they're really not imagining that kind of doomsday scenario. I mean, they're imagining pretty gloomy picture over the next couple of years, but nothing really beyond what people could imagine happening. On GDP growth, for example, we've got the next couple of years remaining in negative territory. And, about sort of four percentage points below the base case scenario that the EU commission is expecting. But that's not really that terrible. You know, you could imagine it getting a bit worse than that.
1: Regulators are very proud that they're being more bearish on that than they were last year. And I suppose that they do have a point. But on some of the other areas, they haven't made the tests tougher than last year at all, particularly on the issue of the sovereign debt exposures, which is, I suppose, the central thing that these stress tests are supposed to uh, resolve uncertainty on.
2: People really hope that there would be a tougher position on that, given that you know some kind of restructuring in sovereign debt is quite likely over the next couple of years and and that hasn't been factored in and um, that's only taken into account in the short-term trading books.
1: Particularly the issue around Ireland and Greece, Greece I suppose there's a kind of great there's a market expectation that at some point those holdings that banks have of, of those sovereign debt investments are going to have to take a haircut if you like exactly. um, at some point.
2: There will be some losses there and as yet they're not factored in. Also there hasn't been really that tighter definition around what the sort of pass mark will be, what core tier one equity banks will have to hold. That's
1: a key thing I think is the the fact that last year's pass mark was criticized, well, A, for being a bit low. It was a six percent ratio pass mark, but it was also on tier one capital, which is a kind of looser definition of loss absorbing capital than many critics would have liked. This year they've kind of signalled in private that they want to go for core tier one, but they haven't yet defined how tightly that core will be defined whether, for example, German banks would be able to have their so-called silent participations counted, which is a crucial thing. I mean, without it, a lot of German banks would fail. Megan, what were your thoughts?
0: Some of the more interesting commentary I saw this morning, which I think came out of Barclays Capital, was just discussing this whole issue, which we talk about all the time, but the interconnectedness of the European banking system. And it's still the stress test really failing to tap into that in terms of if you look at a bank like HSBC, which would have a bit exposure to credit ag in France, but then credit ag will have a huge exposure to National Bank of Greece, and that what they really need to find is a way to actually measure the hit on HSBC should there be a default you know, a national bank of Greece was then a Paris credit ag, which then has a follow on knock on effect on HSBC and and that I think is a really interesting point is that while in isolation all these elements can be either ramped upwards or or toned back downwards depending on economic, macroeconomic predictions, it still doesn't address the sort of interconnected of all the banks and how dependent they are across Europe in everyone functioning at a certain level.
1: That's probably the kind of thing that is a nightmare to model. And if we can't even get it right on the distinct kind of discrete bank basis, then goodness knows how complicated that would prove. But I think that's absolutely right. In in a, in a real crisis, that's what leads to things getting out of control, as as 2007, 2008 showed. Let's move on to the Banking Commission and Sir so John Vickers, who in only a few weeks from now is going to be releasing his interim report on what he thinks should be done to restructure the UK banking system, make it a safer place to operate and safer for the taxpayer as well. Particularly, I suppose he's looking at two broad areas. One is the kind of competition on the high street, but the, the main area that's more contentious is how do you make retail and investment banking under one roof safer? Charlene, there was quite a lot of chatter in the weekend press around what he's thinking and also what the banks are doing to try and lobby against his thinking. Some may be less well-informed in speculation than others, but what is your sense of where things are going?
2: Well, I think we're going to see a sort of constant stream of speculation um, over the next few weeks, as you say, building up to the sort of first full report that we get into um, Sir John Vickers' thinking next month. I mean, over the weekend, there were some quite... Chunky figures out there that were produced by an Oliver Wyman report, and these were really looking at the cost potential costs to the banks if they are forced to effectively separate their businesses without physically splitting them, so if they have to capitalise them separately. And this report put the number as high as £15 billion pounds across UK banking. Was that an
1: accurate figure?
2: Well, we... no, I think that was quite inflated and definitely the words that we've been hearing back from people close to the Commission and even close to the banks themselves saying that actually that is not a credible figure, it's not likely to be that high it is likely to be billions. And we heard from RBS, a a wild bank that they foresee a scenario where it could be sort of higher than four billion pounds for them, but they would be one of the worst hit uh, banks. So I think would be sizable, but I don't think that kind of figure is likely. And that I think would sort of send a great deal of panic in the market if it thought that kind of damage could, could be done to the industry.
1: The other predictable theme that came up in the weekend press was the idea that, you know, if life became too hard here and and restrictions were too onerous, then banks would relocate abroad. Megan, this is something that you've looked at uh, over the months and years, particularly HSBC, and, and Barclays threatening to move in more or less clear terms to New York or Hong Kong, respectively. Is it any more credible a threat now, do you think?
0: Over the past six months, it's almost getting the boy who cried wolf with this a little bit. And I wonder how much the banks are actually getting to the point where they've played this card too much. And at a political level, which I think to some extent, politicians have in fact bought into this argument, particularly in the UK, where George Osborne does seem to be convinced that central importance as a financial center and the possible huge damage of banks like HSBC or Barclays relocating their headquarters elsewhere. But at the same time, the actual logistics of moving domicile is just extraordinarily complex hugely expensive hugely time consuming is it something that banks look at constantly of what where to base their you know their staff where to invest where to put their resources yes of course and i do think we will see select teams you know when it's time to make the next investment as to where to set up a certain desk yes it is something that they're considering But in terms of anyone picking up and moving entire sticks to Hong Kong or Singapore or New York we're just not there. I mean, I was in a conversation today with someone who just said they are only getting credibility on this argument because no one yet writes exactly how difficult or quantifies how much money it would cost for them to do it. And I think if there was one British bank that was most likely, then it would be
2: standard chartered over either Buckley's or HSBC. That would be a lot easier for them, seeing as that they already have sort of 90% of the business outside the UK. But even they are committed to London for the foreseeable future and they repeatedly say so. So I think any chance of anyone moving is is very slim
1: I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more wolf crying uh, over the coming months but let's move finally to the topic of the takeover code which Megan I know you've been looking at today the new takeover code for publicly listed companies are things very different from the old way of doing things according to the new code?
0: This all came out of the very controversial takeover of Cadbury, the iconic English chocolate maker, by Kraft Foods. And sort of some of the machinations that went on around that led to a political and to some extent a public outcry in the UK over some of the tactics employed. And in particular, it was Kraft's assurances that they would keep open a certain factory in the UK that they then subsequently closed after the deal was completed. And that led to politicians saying, we really need to look at when we have hostile bids for companies tightening up the rules around hostile bids and making sure that there's not too much of a tactical advantage on one side over the other. The UK takeover code is one of the most lauded in the world. It's widely seen as rules that operate very efficiently on both sides. So I would characterize these changes, while important, as minor tweaks to the existing regime. And in particular, there's really a couple of key things. One is that the full cost of a bid will have to be disclosed. And this is designed so that shareholders, whether or not a Bid succeeds or fails, don't then all of a sudden see fees which can range, you know, in hundreds of millions on big deals for the investment banks, the lawyers, the PR people who help facilitate these kind of deals. That they add on to the cost of what you know what is a ten billion bid is suddenly eleven billion when all fees are included. So it's it's designed to give a little bit more transparency to shareholders. Another key point is that break fees, which are very common and which are designed to sort of ensure that a bid goes through and are paid by a target company to. The bidder, if if a if a deal falls apart, that those are effectively going to be banned, and and that's quite significant because those were generally running at about one percent of deals. And the other the other big thing is that they're really trying to clamp on on clamp down on what's known as virtual bids, where a bidder will sort of make a bid known that they're interested in making a bid, but not actually make a formal proposal. And they're now going to shorten that time frame, what's called here in the UK, put up or shut up. And in other words, the time you have to actually approach shareholders with a formal offer to four weeks.
1: Probably bad news for the banks, though.
0: It's interesting. Will it be bad news in the sense that these fees will be totally transparent and disclosed and therefore there'll be shareholder pressure to clamp down on them? Obviously, that's the thought. But as we've seen time and time again on a well-worn topic here on the podcast on bankers pay, you know, even with transparency that we're seeing now, we did Barclays, we saw RBS. I didn't see massive shareholder outrage about the fact that two of Barclays senior investment bankers are taking home 80 million in a year. You know, one would hope that and i think that's the way that regulators you know are thinking that transparency will lead to shareholder pressure or shareholder agitation or at least shareholder knowledge but have we seen it come through in practice and in some things not yet so
1: in arguably in certain circumstances, the opposite happens where you get pay inflation Absolutely. and therefore presumably potentially fee inflation when rivals see what others are getting paid.
0: Absolutely. And and it's just, you know, we're, we're heading for what looks like a pretty significant uptick in M&A activity. You know, we have the 40 billion telecoms deal announced yesterday. You know, there are going to be hefty chunks of investment banking advisory work out there and people are ramped up to get a piece of this action. And you know, during these times in the past, competitive pressure keeps fees at a certain level, but the fees are still quite significant. So there's still, there's everything to play for in the M&A market this year, for sure.
1: On that note, unfortunately, we've run out of time. So all that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene and Megan in the studio and Suzanne in New York, and to thank you for listening. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.